It was great for a long time. It was very cheap to live here forever. And whenever the housing bubble happened, I didn't feel much of it here. Like I felt it because a couple of my jobs were these big jobs that were elsewhere and they went away. But living costs didn't really, things didn't change. And I remember like I would listen to, you know, like the skies falling stories and be like, what is this? Because I'm looking out my window and anecdotally, it seems all right around here. And we did real well this region, but we also, housing was low at that time, you know, at a time when it was like peak everywhere else. It was very affordable to live here. Now, in the last five years, like you would see all these articles on wherever, like, oh, Pittsburgh, most livable city and move there and it's yeah. great and all this stuff. And at first it's like, this is awesome, you know, cool, you know. I think that housing industry, there's so much connected to that. They identified like this is a spot where we can make money over whatever the cycle is of basically pumping up prices and, and flipping real estate. Prices yeah. have gone up. I'm looking at houses to, to basically sell my house and buy a new house. And part of it is because, like, my house has gone up in value a lot. Of course, the flip side is it's not a great time to buy for that exact reason. So it's kind of like this weird, you know, chicken and egg. And There's still a bit of it. I yeah. I came from um, D.C. I was at a wedding over the weekend, and I, I told somebody I was going to Pittsburgh. They were like, Pittsburgh? <laughs> Who goes to Pittsburgh? It's still sort of got that, like, yes. kind of Detroit, uh, Castlevania <laughs> vibe for a lot of people. It's done much better than a lot of those Rust Belt cities, you know, like, like figuring out different industries like robotics, schools, medical. There, there's a lot that they did that has kind of paid dividends. And at this point, you know, it seems pretty healthy economically. I like the region. Like, visually, I like it a lot. I grew up like an hour south of here, and the whole rap was, Get, a, get an education and move because there's nothing here, you know, and it, this was like a couple of generations of steel mills closing, industry leaving, blue collar stuff going away. And talk to people at, at Carnegie, you know, I come here every once in a while and, and meet people out there and it was always, there was always such a, a bleed problem from the school itself. They would have the greatest minds in robotics come out here and then invariably everybody would leave. Yeah. You know, I don't know who to credit for that, but it seems like that is something that has improved. I can remember reading articles like different film tax breaks to incentivize filmmakers to come here. And we have, you know, like a lot of movies end up being filmed here. There's kind of a small industry of that, you know, local, a lot of the film companies hire local then whenever they show up. So that's kind of a small industry that has grown, I assume specifically from political policies that, that were designed to do that. Sure. So, you know, I assume other industries have that same thing. Film is kind of more public, I think. Sometimes you don't notice what tax incentives are being given to other companies, although, you know, they've courted other places, too. Who's the carless drivers? I don't know if it's Uber. There's, I think there's like two of them. Well, Uber, Uber was, last time I was here, Uber was doing the yeah. piloting, but that, I don't think it's legal at this moment to do it. There was like an accident. They stopped doing it. Um, I think Waymo was doing testing out here because, because Google's actually got a big presence as yeah. well. But it was really funny again to be out here two years ago and to have these autonomous cars driving by and nobody batted an eye. It was just a part of everyday life. Yeah. So, you know, somebody's done a good job of of recruiting some of this industry too. I think the mayor, the mayor seems to be pretty, pretty proactive when it comes to stuff like that as well. sounds like it's a bit of a mixed bag for you. Yeah. I mean, I live, you know, in a suburb essentially. So I don't know. And also like I've been cheerleading Pittsburgh as long as I've been here. When I moved here, it was from this small, like podunk rural town kind of situation so it was bleak big yeah it was like this was the big bad yeah, city yeah, yeah. when i was growing up and so like i would just get up on the weekends and take my camera and go to like different neighborhoods because there's a lot of history here and i like all that and i would just get up in the mornings and just go and photograph places and a lot of that's changed and i guess now it's going on 20 years that i've been here but i think it's a beautiful city like there's a lot i like about it when you were a young cartoonist starting out i mean was was this a good place to be a home base to be a launching pad Yes. 
accidentally, but yes. When I started out, I knew one other guy that wanted to make comics. I, I had met him at school. I went to school like an hour from here. And we both graduated and ended up here. And so we would meet each week kind of in the middle of the city because we lived on opposite sides just to look at what we were doing, basically encourage each other and we're self-publishing. And you meet at comic book stores, right? This mm-hmm. is where cartoonists find each other. Pretty it, soon, it was. Yeah, I yeah, guess so. For the internet, really. Pretty soon, Ed shows up. And then, like, Tom Scioli shows up. And you don't know it at the time. Like, oh, yeah, this is this great city for, you know, because it's cheap. And there are some other people that are really ambitiously trying to make comics. And you bump into each other and you take it for granted. Like, I, I think frequently, like, how did I meet this person? Or when did I meet them? Or what did I think of them when I met? And you don't know it. It's not significant at the time. It's just, oh, another person has shown up here at our weekly get-togethers. But that turned out to be huge. Like, I always think community and people big part of like my development being able to get feedback but also feeling like you don't want to show up and not have something so you know it's kind of like that positive peer pressure it's worked out really well for me and there are a lot of cartoonists you know ron friend sophie goldstein was here for a couple of years frank santoro grew up here moved away and then came back i don't know he's probably been here 15 years yeah. now again you know so like there are lots of these pockets and there's a good comic book sort of like store, you know, like network comics are fairly well respected in this town. I think at a time when maybe they were only starting to gain that respect elsewhere and little things like that are, they've been very valuable to me. It's not something I would have anticipated when I was like, okay, I'm going to grow up and try to figure out how to make comics. But in hindsight, it's like, oh yeah, having this guy who's an expert at this thing and, you know, ran a shop that I would visit and he could point me at like, oh, look at this newspaper cartoonist you've never heard of or this imported cartoonist that you haven't seen. Those were big things in hindsight. And it was just lucky breaks. I didn't plan that. Why do you think Pittsburgh was at the bleeding edge of, of comics as, as an art form? I mean, I tend to think of it as a blue collar working city, albeit with some sort of interesting outsider stuff, you know, like your, your, your war halls and things. I mean, there is that element. Man, I don't know. Maybe yeah. every city, you know, like sometimes I think every city has this. Because yeah. also when I started doing shows, then you would meet people like, oh, these, you know, Kevin Heisinger and Dan Zetwalk and Ted May. And these guys are like the St. Louis gang, you know. And then in my head, it was like every city just had its group of cartoonists. Yeah. I don't know that to be true. You mentioned Andy Warhol, you know, like that was somebody who kind of wasn't doing comics, obviously, but looked at comics and sure. was like, hey, why not put yeah. them on the wall? Look at them. You know, they have some value. Maybe that influences the culture. I, I don't know. It's interesting in a place like this, you know, if you look, if you look at like a, a New York or um, Los Angeles or even like San Francisco, people tend to connect together, you know, over like aesthetic connections, content, things like that. But if you look at a group, you know, you and, and Ed and, and, and Tom and Frank, it's a pretty diverse pair when it comes to the comics that you produce. It's sort of like a strange bedfellows situation. Yeah, I love that part. Yeah. I love that we don't all look like we're sharing a studio and, you know, copying the same people. One of the big influences, I think, for this region is Bill Boyshell, who is the proprietor of Copacetic Comics. But he had a store, might have been late 70s, early 80s, called BEM. And he was always very open-minded about comics. He comes from the same areas like Gary Groth and Dan Nadell and would maybe be a contemporary of Gary Groth. You know, like he had these progressive ideas when it came to making, when it came to comics and comics as an art form. And then he opens up a store and he applies that. You know, he's encouraging kids to come in and read whatever, you know, hang out. Like he had a little lounge, you know, couch where neighborhood kids would just come and hang out in his store, which, you know, a lot of comic shop owners aren't cool with that at all. But he also was housing things like, here's Love and Rockets next to whatever the new Marvel book is and not making a distinction there like, one is good and one is bad or they're different or, you know, we're Wednesday store. You do that for a couple of generations. And, and I think it you end up with leaders and you almost reverse build the community that you're describing where people find 
each other based on a common interest. You're almost creating that common interest with a bunch of people. And then those people are going out and becoming teachers and librarians and entrepreneurs and all these different positions that may subtly affect the way we think about this culture. That's actually very interesting, this idea of housing them all together, because while you guys, from a content perspective and from an aesthetic perspective, perhaps don't have that much in common between the four guys that I just mentioned, I think the through line is that relationship between mainstream and indie comics. I mean, it's it's very present in all of your work. You know, we all are mostly self-taught on the comic side of it. Now, comics ed is pretty common. Every school, I think, that teaches any art classes has some comic classes, probably because they're popular and, you know, you want to make money if you run a school. But we uh, came up where it was like we were teaching ourselves. Like, we just wanted to do this thing, and there wasn't a lot of formal education. When I was in school, I would take art classes or go to the library. There weren't a lot of comics, and they were discouraged. If I pull out a comic in an art class when I was in school, it was like, this is beneath you or this is beneath this class anyway. And so you were left to your own devices. And we were all in that position, you know, and, and we're kind of about the same age, probably a 10 year window there mm-hmm. between the four of us. And we're just hungry for whatever we could find. And then you would, you would take what you could find pre-internet too. So like if I found an interview with a cartoonist, they could be doing some type of cartooning that I had no interest in. Like, like a newspaper cartoonist wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, but that was all I might find. So then I'm reading like how they do it, what they do, what their process is. And it's just all information and combined with what other, other, other scraps you're getting. Like I went to school for graphic design, so that gets folded into my comics making. You know, like I would work in print production. So now I'm making my own comics, like literally, you know, working with a local printer or something yeah. and, and figuring out like, well, how do you actually do this? I know how to prepare print files. Okay. I can try it this way. And then of course, as the four of us get together, then we're just swapping information. There weren't a lot of those barriers. You know, I went through, I think it's common people of our generation i went through that progress of i read marvel comics because that's what was available at a Mm -hmm. newsstand and then i got bored of those after a couple years because those stories just kind of cycle and i found other stuff comic book stores specifically and i found alternative comics and things that were more ambitious or at least something different and kept my mind interested in comics you know if i don't find those things i probably just lose interest in comics and move on but instead it's like oh yeah so i've liked marvel comics and superhero stuff and now i like alternative stuff and then I started doing my own comics, and that's like SPX around 2000 time, and it's just self-made what would be like mini comics. And I find a bunch of people that are doing that, and that's a different version of comics for me. And then graphic novels and manga happen, and I'm reading those. Yeah. You know, It was just like new is great for me. It's something I haven't seen, and I don't see that much distinction between them. You, you know, like the boundaries of comics – have exploded in the last 10 years like they're just you know you think of like what are the frontiers of where it's no longer comics or something there's almost no limit now people are doing everything you can reproduce any mark you you make this is new this is new to my adult life you know it's just this thing of if you get bored going in one direction you can go in another direction but also they all exist in one plane we just looked at understanding comics on my youtube channel this past week and you look at like some of mcleod's ideas from the early 90s which a lot of them weren't registering with me at that time i was pretty young wasn't didn't know a lot of the references they were very conceptual too and but you look at them now and it's very inclusive where it's like he's looking at newspaper comics he's looking at manga he's looking at abstract images and where do they fit on his idea of like a comics image plane you know it was in a way like i grew up with that idea you didn't see it necessarily in comics for until that generation grows up and starts making their own but i think it's pretty common now i I mean maybe i'm wrong Because I'm surrounded by people that are, in a way, yes men, or we've had this conversation before. But I think it's much more common now that, like, comics are just everything. You know, you look at – I did comics on Webtoons a couple years ago and was just astounded by how 
large that community is and how totally different it was from, you know, I think I'm pretty well read and know comics fairly well. I started yeah. sort of exploring webtoons and it's like there are millions of, of people here consuming comics that seem to be completely unrelated to the groups that I'm familiar with. And it's incredible. I mean, it's part of, I think, why comics remain vital, even though we have some ups and downs sort of in the industry. I use that term very loosely. You know, the economics of comics are in strange places all the time, it seems. But I think the vitality is there whenever you see, like, just how different comics can be and are. I get a lot of energy from that. But in terms of, like, I don't look at them and think, like, this kind's good and this kind's bad. When I look at you guys, I don't get... There, there's a very... I mean, as you said, there's sort of a very common cycle when it comes to indie cartoons, especially of our, of our you know, general age group, which is starting off with superheroes and then moving to more independent stuff. But generally in that process, there's a there's often a rejection of the superhero books of the mainstream stuff. Was that ever something you experienced or were you always kind of just all in on everything? No, I definitely had a rejection. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know, man, almost 20 years ago, yeah. I went through a phase and, and it sold like 75% of my comics, which were mostly like those 90s superhero books. And uh, I've been buying them back ever since. So and it, like you purged. I purged. Yeah. I purged. And whenever all these stores were like gutting their back issues, you know, I'm buying long boxes for like 15 cents a Thankfully, book. Thankfully, they're very cheap restock. now. Yeah. It's true. But, you know, I mean, I, I think that rejection thing, that's something I see as common, too. Uh, I don't feel it now. You know, I, I can look at that stuff and say Rob Liefeld comics are very bad in a lot of ways. But I can also kind of see like, but this is what I responded to at the time yeah. when they were my favorite. And some of that still remains. You know, there's still a certain energy that other comics don't have. Uh, comics that may be much better by almost any measure, but they may be lacking in some specific quality. And that's usually what I'm drawing from most of what I look at is what am I taking from this? You know, what's exciting to me here? What do I remember? What can I use? Liefeld seems to be experiencing a, a bit of a renaissance at this point. I mean, I'm sure to some degree it's because of Deadpool and the things that he created kind of, you know, becoming just pop culture beyond comics. Um, but you guys did seem to be pretty early on, like, getting back onto the image bandwagon. I mean, that was more so than any superhero comic. That was the thing, the... um you know, that the specifically like the Liefeld image stuff that everyone was pushing back against so hard. But it was, I mean, obviously the timing was really right for all of us. It was right there when we were looking to go from mainstream books to something maybe a little bit weirder. It was a nice, it was a nice transition there. But, um, you, you guys do seem to have an appreciation for that stuff and did, did seem to be kind of early on the kind of retro appreciation bandwagon for a lot of that work. Yeah. And, I don't particularly enjoy his his contemporary comics, mm -hmm. and I often feel like I'm. I spent time defending him for a long time, his his art. Yeah, and now I feel like I'm defending myself as being like, now wait a minute, yeah, I'm not yeah, a huge yeah, Rob yeah. Liefeld cheerleader. I, it wasn't, I I, it wasn't ironic of, though. No, no, it was never ironic. No, definitely. Yeah. I think that stuff is legitimate, and and I remember fondly like that was my favorite for a for a long time. Yeah. If there was a new you know X Force or New Mutants at the newsstand, man, that was a good week of comics for and, me. And it is maybe a little harder on that bandwagon than you are, from what I can tell. He's like possibly, yeah. But you know, there are other things that are really important to me when it comes to Rob Liefeld, and and again, he when I say Rob Liefeld, I'm sort of making a broader. There's a bigger group there. You could sure, put Todd McFarlane he is like in the there. Microcosm of right. That. He, he's an easy one to kind of if, if, if you're going to use yeah. one person as the example, he fits it really well. But I mean, like it's Image Comics. You know, if you divorce yourself from the aesthetic qualities of his work, there's still Image Comics, mm -hmm. 
And I know that Image has lots of its own demons and skeletons in the closet and it's not perfect, but it also was a huge beginning of creator rights for me. And I know they didn't start creator rights. Sure. But for, you know, 12, 13 year old me, it was my exposure to that. And I've gone on to be much more educated about that topic. But, but to that's see the first and to see the, fir- the biggest people making comics at the time peel off to do their own thing. And that was huge. That's the thing. Like we, you know, I'm doing a YouTube show where we look at old wizard magazines and I started reading Wizard Magazine at, like, number 10, and it was the first one that had an image character on it. And that's the reason. Like, I wanted to know more about image comics. I wanted to know more about these artists who I liked who were suddenly doing their own characters, starting their own company. And I think a lot of people had that experience. You know, like I said, it's it's not all good. It's I don't—nothing's perfect. Yeah. But it was, in my comics history, a pivotal moment. And so, uh, you know, there's lots of those reasons, too, besides like, oh, he doesn't draw feet or he draws motion lines really well. There's also other stuff. There's also a bigger conversation and, a you know, a big imprint on comics history. You look at the 90s and it's basically image forms. And then there's good and bad that comes out of that. But like, that's the significant event. A lot of times I think if you can identify something that is 100% perceived one way or the other, there's room to dig in that and it will swing back around. And for a long time, that 90s comics era was sort of just a joke you know it was ridiculed and mocked at best or hated maybe by a lot of people and you realize like we'll go back and reread that stuff and look at it again one there's there's good work that was produced in that era but also the work that's demonized is not all bad either obviously you are very drawn to exploitation for example you know aphrodisiac or kung fu ninjas things like that very very pulpy stuff and and i, I guess in a way again of of our, of our gener- general age group and that time when we were sort of coming of age and really noticing art that is the definitive expression of that at the time like that was our pulp exploitation of that era so it makes sense that that's something that you would have zeroed in on yeah i'm i like patterns you know i love genre like like you're right exploitation kung fu 90s comics all of this stuff's perfect when i started doing the plain janes i started reading ya books and you know there's there are patterns there uh you know i like genre for that reason how does something like the plain janes book come about i mean you do seem to be somebody who again is is also drawn to collaborating with people generally it came about organically you know i had a list of stuff i wanted to do in my career whenever i started i did street angel which was a young uh, female protagonist kind of visually a a ya type character and that was really your thing yeah it was mine i do it in conjunction with a writing partner Mm -hmm. brian maruka but you know definitely a big a big piece of me there and so that was like my first published book that went Further than me handing out copies. And Shelley Bond, who was the editor of Plain Janes, just had it on file. You know, I think editors used to keep artists on file. And um, whenever she started the young adult line, I was one of the artists that was sort of being shown to people. And uh, Cecil Castellucci, the writer, the young adult writer behind Plain Janes, gravitated toward my work. And that's how that started. You know, I wanted to work with an editor at some point. As I said, I'm self-taught. So like one of my plans was at some point work with an editor. Uh, you know, see what that process is, see what I could take from that. And so whenever that call came, it was like, sure, that's, you're on my list here somewhere. Let's, uh, let's do this. Do you find it more creatively fulfilling to work with a writer? Uh, I don't know about that. I've had really good experience yeah. working with Cecil. We're actually doing, uh, yeah. wrapping up the Plain Janes She's now. She's also so. just one of the most wonderful people I've ever met. So yeah, we've gotten along <laughs> really well yeah. as well. You know, I, I consider her a friend at this point, but the uh, creative experience has been really good. There's a lot of back and forth. She's clearly the writer on Plain Janes, but she gives me a lot of input. We talk about the story as she's developing it. So. It's been very rewarding. It's nice 
sometimes to work with somebody else. I don't know that I have a preference. Like whenever the stuff that I do myself, I get to really just do it. And and I like not working with an editor too. I yeah. like taking those chances and thinking if this doesn't work, it's on me. But also it's hard to explain some of these ideas. When I did Aphrodisiac, I put together a proposal and sent it to every publisher you can imagine. And I'm, it was a good proposal. Like I, I produced it as a comic book. It looked good. And I got a lot of baffled no's in response to that. And then when the book came out, it did phenomenal. And I got a lot of responses from these editors and publishers, you know, saying how they loved it or whatever. But it was too, almost too weird, I think, to be something I could I could show them in concept form and have them say yes or no. I think they saw the proposal and were like, I don't know what this is. It doesn't look like anything. This is strange. No thanks. And then once it comes out, it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Now yeah. I understand it. I like that. The work I love is stuff I haven't seen before. It's something new. It's something different. And so that's the kind of work I want to make. It's hard to sell that sight unseen, you know? So usually whenever I've worked with publishers on that kind of stuff, I just make it myself. And whenever it's done or very close to done, then I put it in front of a publisher, you know? And I like that part. It's very freeing. It's part of what I love about comics. There's such a low barrier to entry. Like you can go off and just make anything you can conceive of in a comic. And if push comes to shove, now more than ever, you can self-publish it. But I love that part. You know, it's sort of the total gonzo creative freedom that, you know, that'd be hard to pull off in a film. You feel like you're at a point in your career where you're just going to see what you're working on to its logical end, regardless of whether or not somebody is interested in publishing it? Absolutely. If I if I like it enough to do it, because yeah. it's a time commitment, you know, that's your trade-off. You think of like time and money as being sort of the same, you know, variables sure. that equal each time, other. Time is money, as the saying goes. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. As you get into freelance, you yeah. realize that. But, you you know, if, if I'm willing to invest that time in it, it means I love this idea. I see some great potential in this idea. I need this thing to exist. You know, any of those driving factors is enough for me to kind of like, I'm going to go with it. And I mean, at this point, man, you can figure out how to make this mm -hmm. stuff. There, there's no shortage of funding available. Do you find yourself abandoning a lot of work? Uh, you know, do, do you have a lot of stuff on the back burner? I mean, surely there are things that just don't don't work out that you can't work all the way to the end. 10,000 yeah. half scribbled notes in sure. my, in my notebooks. But once you start on something, you're, you're in it. Yeah. I'm trying to think. There's probably, there's probably been a couple of small projects that didn't, didn't go anywhere. I, I quit, you know, very early on, but I don't have any big things sitting around that I can think of that were like, this was three years of my life sure. and now nobody's ever going to see it. Yeah. I, I don't think I have any of those. You seem like somebody who really spends a lot of time on a given page or image. Yeah. Do you feel like you work slowly versus other people? I don't know. It depends on the project. Yeah. You know, I've been drawing two pages a day for the last three okay. months. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> right now I don't feel like I'm working slow, but it's different working with a team than it is doing everything yourself. You know, like I'm going to pass these pages off to a letterer. Uh, there's a designer that's putting the book together. So it's much different than I am doing everything myself, including editing. That does take yeah. longer for sure. You know, you're doing the work of, if you look at Marvel or something, you might be doing the work of seven to 10 people whenever you do literally everything yourself on the project. So it, it takes a while. You know, if I'm doing that, I want to be sure of it, you know, so I yeah. do end up spending a lot of time and a lot of planning. And I see the notebook pages that you put on Facebook. And I mean, I, I can't think of another artist who spends that time and has that detailed and polished sketch pages as you do. What role does that play in the process? Those were, uh, you know, I was doing gallery art shows for a while. And so those were coming out of that. It started out, um, I had done a, a notebook drawing. I put it in the auction at Heroes one year and 
whenever people held it up like for the auction, there was literally cheering in the crowd. And it was like, all right, awesome. People like this. I liked it. It was fun. But who knows where it goes from there. So I got the positive reinforcement. Like people connect to this. It's notebook. You know, it's ballpoint pen drawings on notebook. I think it's flashbacks to everybody's like everybody's gone through school and stared at that lined paper and can relate. I enjoyed doing it and I got a good response. So I make another one and it just kind of takes off. And what I was doing at the time, I was a little more engaged in sort of the art community. I was earmarking like one or two days a week where it's like, I'll just draw, you know, and I'll I'll try to allow myself to be free to draw whatever I'm interested in that day. And it was kind of an exercise in that way, but it, it, you know, it did well. Like I had a couple of solo shows in LA with those drawings, a couple of book collections of those that sold well. I'm actually thinking about doing another uh, set of notebook drawings as I start to write my next project because writing takes time and I don't want to not draw. So, you know, some of the writing process is kind of a lot of thinking and those drawings are very meditative for me, the notebook drawings. You know, they take a long time when you're drawing with a notebook. You know, it's a small tip of of a pen. So it's kind of a meditative process and one I've been thinking about returning to. What does it take for the project to take the next step? I mean, again, if you've got 10,000 things working at once and and these things are reasonably time-consuming, you can really only feasibly do or really focus in on one project at a time. If it's not a publisher saying yes to something, what's the motivation from, you know, from notebook page to actually sitting down in earnest and creating something? That's a good question, yeah. Brian. <laughs> you know, something, it, it, something rises above the rest for some does. reason. If we look through like everything I've done, it's probably a little different for each project. Sure. You know, things come up. I did a, I did a four issues of Adventure Time, like one big story arc of Adventure Time a couple yeah. years ago. And it was because I had a very full schedule, but I wanted to make more comics. This would have been after the notebook drawings, but I didn't have that much time. And so like that project was kind of like, it crossed my path and it was like, this is perfect. It, it'll give me, I'll draw a couple hours a day on this. That's what I have in my schedule. So let's do it. And it was a really fun project. You know, it's not one I look at and think creatively, this is what I want to be known for, but it's one I felt very happy with and enjoyed doing, but it fit my schedule at the time. You know, I was looking for something that I could spend three hours a day on and that happened to show up and it worked out perfect. You know, there, it's all different. Like I have a project right now that I expect will be my next comic. And it's based on I had a production idea and I found somebody who's willing to uh, basically back that production yeah. idea. So now I need to write a story that fits that production idea. And quite honestly, I don't it's not story driven at all why I'm going to try to do this. It's something I've thought about for probably 15 years as a concept visually. And now it's like that will fit. Like I have a three month block of time coming up where that's what I will draw in that three months. You're freelancing. And I I tend to think of freelancers as being maybe a little bit looser from the time from the standpoint of I have freelance as a writer, but I go in, I go into work every single day. So my days are are pretty strict, right? I mean, it's like 96, 97 every single day. It sounds like you've got things planned out pretty well in advance at this point. Then you have like a three month block at some point down the road. Yeah. I do a lot of stuff. So there's a fair amount of planning. It's not very well structured. It's mostly like putting out fires in a lot of ways. Uh, it, it's terrible. I get questioned a lot about my schedule. It's weird how much like young cartoonist or whatever, that's the question they have is like, what's your routine? It's terrifying to just sort of sit down and not have anything on your plate. It really is. And I've been full time basically freelancing since 2007. And it's always been, I spent years looking for that routine. I believe in the schedule and the routine. I just don't have it, but I'm a morning person. So I wake up like five or six in the morning and I just kind of go to work. Part of my, you know, my schedule tends to be almost yearly. So, you know, like I teach a class in the spring and I teach a class in the fall and that sort of blocks out four months of my time. 
you know, I, I'm not teaching full time, but it gives me a certain structure to work around. Those are the one concrete piece of your schedule that you have to work around. Right. And so like, I kind of know like there's a break here, there's a break here. This takes, yeah. you know, 15 hours a week or something. You know, making comics is a very long term effort. Like you especially a graphic novel, yeah. you sit down and look at the calendar and think, okay, I'm going to draw 10 pages a week now for 70 weeks or something. You just kind of go from, you know, from there. So like I have a lot of different projects, different stages, and you try to balance them and you try to eyeball like, okay, I'm going to finish this one up. And then this one becomes the primary job that I'll spend half of my time each week on. Has teaching been something that's interested you for a while? I mean, how, how did the SVA get come out? Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned like I wanted to work with an editor whenever the plain chains happened. It's weird. It's kind of like it's that manifesting thing. You have an idea. Stick something out into the universe. And but in my head, it was like, yeah. I am interested in teaching. And I think it's partially because I consider my comics making as a self-taught venture. And so I've just read so much about like, how do you do this? And talk to educators and talk to teachers who weren't necessarily teaching comics, but I thought they had a piece I could pull from them. And so it's always kind of interested me just by, you know, basically teaching myself how to make comics. And I talk to people about the, you know, when I'm at comic book shows, I talk to other professionals about whatever, you know, we find some yep. overlapping interest and usually it's about making comics because what else are we going to talk you about? Make, you all make comics. I'm, I'm obsessed yeah. with this. <laughs> so, uh, you know, from those conversations, uh, I guess informally I networked my way into this. And it was on my like, oh, probably in the next five years or so, I'd love to try teaching. And about 10 minutes later, I got an offer and it was like, okay, this is yeah, pretty good. You know, like I wasn't quite ready for it, but From it SVA? is something. Yeah, it is something that was on my list of things I'd like to do. And SVA is a school I, I have a lot of respect for. So it worked out pretty well. Like what they offered me was I really couldn't beat it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I got to design the curriculum myself. It's it's been it's been pretty awesome and it's a the program I teach in is multidisciplinary so that feeds into we were talking about hey do you you know do you separate these comics into different qualitative states or whatever it's like now add picture books and video and game design into that equation of like visual storytelling and it's it's been you know that's probably been the big piece for me in the last five or six years like I wouldn't say I was bored with the comics I was reading but suddenly I had this influx of like okay start looking at games and how they work and the mechanics behind storytelling in that. Or picture books have been a huge revelation. And, you know, for anybody that's familiar with, like, my Street Angel books, you can probably see the picture book influence on those. You know, it's kind of a two-way street. I love making this stuff, but I also love, like, sort of making myself as a maker, bringing in these new influences and new ways of thinking and what can, again, how can I make my comics look different than everybody else's comics? Do you get bored easily? I don't, I don't, but mostly because of time. You seem like somebody who requires a lot of stimulation. I think I probably... intake a lot more than most people. Do you think that being self-taught was helpful when it came to pulling that curriculum together? Yes. Also, my wife is a is a teacher and she's actually a professor of education. So she's sort of a teacher's teacher. I don't know what, how you would describe it. She understands education very okay. well. She thinks about education the way you think about comics. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's been a huge resource for me. And, and it's she'd much rather talk about teaching yeah. than talk about comics. So I think she's appreciated it as well. I'm sure she's very patient and she humors you. And that's why the relationship works out. Sure. You manifest this idea into the world. You, you get a call from SVA. They give you what sounds like a, quite a bit of autonomy to create this project. So what what's the next step when you when you sit down and actually have to work out your first syllabus how do you start on that man it has been a lot of miles since then i i will be honest i don't remember specifically you know i was thinking of it so the class the main class that i teach is visual narrative visual storytelling and it's just thinking about 
This goes back to the first submissions when I was a teenager trying to submit comics to Marvel. I remember the advice is like, they had a submission guide, like a one-page thing they would, yeah. you could get. And it would talk about telling stories visually where you should be able to understand what's happening in the comic without words. And that's been like one of the underlying pieces of my comics education, my forever, you know, like that's the stuff I gravitate to, whether it's filmmaking, you know, where I'm like, okay, this cut is so perfect, you know, like look at these two images that they put together and it, you know, makes me feel this way. So that's something that's always been like forefront of my storytelling and comics. And I built my curriculum around that concept, right? Like basically how do we put two images together and create meaning and then just expand that to, you know, virtually unlimited number of, of images strung together and it sounds like you find it useful to go outside of the medium to, to sort of draw inspiration or to i mean obviously to draw inspiration for your own work but as a way to contextualize it to young artists yeah um Video I, games, I haven't movies. thought of it in, in quite in those terms. Yeah. You know, I use examples from all of these different media. But one of the things very early on was like trying to figure out what's common across this different media. And so some of that was me filtering before it would get to students. You know, the idea of like, okay, we're visual communications has certain language qualities like we think yeah. of grammar or something, you know, like. And a lot of that just has to do with shared. Like we all look at something and we all recognize that it means the same thing. Okay, you can build on that. So a lot of that was my filtering before I got it to the students. You know, it's not necessarily something I present to them as like, okay, think about this in this wider context. Yeah. It's more of like, think about how would you tell this in a video game? How would you tell this in video? How would you tell this with no images versus no words? You know, so it's a lot of just like trying to think about how do you communicate that idea that you have is, is ultimately what it comes down to and what I hope those students take from the class. Maybe the question is, you know, obviously there is a, as you mentioned before, a wide breadth of comics out there to draw from. So if you're starting a comics class, you know, you can go to the Marvel stuff or, or the, the indie stuff or, or manga or anything else. There's a lot of examples to draw from there. So whether for teaching or for your own work, why is it useful to go to look toward another medium. Well, I want to make comics that aren't like everybody else's comics. So, you yeah. know, that's the short answer. What sort of inspiration, I guess, do you find in a, in a film in terms of that visual storytelling that you don't find in a comic? You might find a lot more with, with actors. You know, you might see a lot more in terms of how are they communicating this thing? How would you communicate it in comics? Going back to like the image example, those guys came from a monthly grind background. So if you're drawing 22 pages a month, you have, this is the, this is my man model. This is my woman model. This is my kid that looks like a deformed old person or something. Nobody ever drew kids well. But you know, like you would look at these guys who were very successful, but all their characters kind of looked the same. Sure. They were not giving you a lot of nuanced body language, but you go and watch film and it might all be nuanced body language or big, you know, certain filmmakers, that may be the thing they're really specializing in or the thing that like that dramatic actor that you can't look away from that, you know, you would watch him read the phone book. Why? Why? What is, what is he doing? So, you know, you can use that just because a lot of cartoonists don't doesn't mean yeah. that you can't or it doesn't exist or it doesn't work in comics, you know, figure out how it works. Set design is a huge thing in film because you have people that specialize in set design man, you can tell a lot about a character or a scene or a movie or anything from the set design. That's something that I think backgrounds are the last thing cartoonists learn to yep. draw. So go figure that part out. You know, make that setting a character. We just looked at Domu on our YouTube channel and it's huge. You know, like it's all contained in one 
building and that thing is a character and people will say that but it's not often yeah. true like finding examples where it's true you know it'll really resonate it'll stand out because that's not something most comics have so figure that part out you know see the things that that stand out that you aren't seeing in comics because obviously film's a good example everybody watches yeah. movies or watches tv now you know you can you can just kind of like do the comparison why am i watching this television show instead of reading comics right now what's so great about it and you start to see those little pieces. Obviously, cartoons have to create shortcuts or tricks, again, on the mainstream side because they're doing a book every month, and on the uh, alternative comic side because, you know, when you sit down and work on a two, 400-page book and it's going to get really repetitive, you can't kill yourself on, on every single page. And that is, I guess that's not something that exists in, in film in the same way. Every storytelling medium is going to have shortcuts in it. And it's not just for the people making it. It's also for an audience. It's shorthand. Like, we're trying to communicate something, so, like, Four yeah. people sitting around a table with food, you can look at it and go, that, that's a family dinner or something. You know, like you very quickly register what you're seeing based again on like this shared common language experience understanding that we have. You do have those shortcuts to save time. You know, as you say, you don't want to set up photo shoots sure. for every panel that you're drawing, but you also have them as a reader. You know, like you want to, there, there are lots of sections in comics that you do not need to be decoding in great detail what this each panel in this nine panel grid is. You know, it would destroy the drama of the page or the sequence. So, you know, some of it is for the creator, but a good a good comic it's also for the reader you know it's like this is the exact amount of information you need of course that's subjective and changes individually but there's still those sweet spots and there are there are the cartoonists mm -hmm. that are very good at that you know i would say like in a mainstream example david mazzucchelli's batman year one's a really good example of that where it's like that thing is is it moves man that's a sports yeah. car of yeah. a superhero comic like there's not a lot of unnecessary information there it's sort of like the perfect amount and you can breeze through that artwork was the thing that frank miller did pretty well as well i think just sort of basic amount of information for you to a lot of manga yeah. is that way you know so the flip side would be jeff darrow so yeah. another collaborator yeah. frank miller's but it's a different reading experience so you know like you want to consider that stuff too and that's something that i suppose film has some of that you'd see it maybe in the new blade runner movie where it's like okay this is really a, a color composition yeah. and it's not so much about any specific detail it's more about setting up mood or, or something you have all of that to some extent in comics and you could find examples in comics but sometimes those things are more prevalent in other media you know so look at the other media and find the best examples there and then port that back to your comics making it does strike me though that your your stuff your work versus a lot of other artists is you you seem to be somebody who thrives when you challenge yourself aesthetically when you learn you know new new types when when one book doesn't look the same as the next yeah that goes back to you said i'm you'll probably get bored easily yeah. yes yeah. I, i've been uh, i've seen reviews that described it as restless you know going i guess from one work to another or, like aphrodisiac i think had uh, that within the context of the same book yeah and and that's what it's a reflection of you know like i'm not marvel i don't have hundreds of books that all can fulfill and scratch different itches it's yeah, like if yeah. i want to do a book that's a different mood style look that's up to me to figure out but it's also what excites me you know if you were to look through all of my work like it's not going to be the same i don't want to do the same part of the reason i don't have a day job is because i don't want to do the same thing every day so that informs my creative decisions as to what's the next book well it's probably something very different than the one i just finished when you're working on a, a project that is that is all you writing and drawing is it is it the style that comes first is it is it the kind of drawing you want on paper or is it the storyline that informs that it could come from either. Yeah. I know that's such a like lyrics and music <laughs> question. It really can come from either. I just need to have like a thing that kind of grabs me. And and that could be a concept, a character, a pro 
production sure. detail. I think sometimes that it's funny. I think people react to my work in different ways for that reason, you know, because sometimes like Super Mag was something where it was like that was a formally driven thing, mm-hmm. you know, like I had done some art directing before that on magazines and was like, oh man, I thought magazines were dead. And now, you know, I've, I've like reawoken this love of magazines because yeah. in the nineties, magazines were huge. They were sort of the forefront of desktop publishing revolution. And that was when I was studying design. So it was really, you know, I loved it. It was like rock and roll. And when I had a chance to like play with that, it was a formal exercise in a lot of ways. It reflected what I was doing very well because I was doing a million different things. So I could kind of fold that into the magazine structure, but that was definitely built out of a formal concept of like, I think this will work. And then I can play with all of this, you know, references to my 90s uh, schooling yeah. and things that I was interested in. But also it, it kind of fits with a very schizophrenic output at that period where I was doing several different directions of, of, of projects. And they fit pretty well under that, um, you know, an anthology umbrella. So that that's how that project came about, you know. It was, definitely a concept format driven when you're trying what's really a new style for you how much ramp up time does that require you know how many sketchbooks does that take in order to really pinpoint a new style it does not it it usually does not take very long you start making pages and you know like the deadlines the great style you kind of work it out on on the page yeah and super mag's a good example because a lot of that were projects that were like okay i'm gonna do I, I was doing orphaned comic book pages as original art. You know, it was sort of a concept I was playing with. And so I had done some of those and it wasn't planned for a book. There wasn't an yeah. end outcome. It was for shows. It was for different art shows. And as I kind of went through a cycle of those, it was like, okay, that's, that's what I wanted to do with these, you know, and I have a dozen of them moving on to the next thing. So, you know, sometimes this stuff doesn't go anywhere or it's a one-off for some outlet in the anthology, uh, an art show my own amusement once in a while not very often unfortunately uh, i should carve more time for that but you know like the stuff kind of organically develops a lot of it comes out of the previous projects so like aphrodisiac i i did about six or seven different coloring techniques in that book and they would stem from there are a lot of short stories chapters illustrations in that book i would be working on one using a technique that I knew how to do, and then accidentally something else would emerge. And it'd be like, oh man, remember that one, and then you can use it going forward. So it looks experimental, but it was almost accidental, the experimentation where it's like, I know how to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm doing it. But in the process of doing this thing that I had figured out how to do, other stuff emerged. And then it's like, okay, the next story, I'm going to do it this other way, which I already know how to do because I figured it out you know, kind of yeah. on the side and I've stored that. So, you know, I'm just making things all the time. I'm reading things all the time, looking at lots and thinking about what, yeah. the, what I want to, what's going to sustain me for six months or a year on a project. And that I think I can, you know, not lose that time to like a zero net income in the, yeah. whenever it's done. Not die destitute in the yeah. meantime. And some of it, you know, you figure out like, okay, I'm being paid well on a project that's a big project this year. That means I've got like six months of, I don't need it to pay anything mm-hmm. afterwards. You know, it's the old filmmaking model of like one for them, one for you. Hopefully the thing the will Cassavetes, yield results, uh, yeah. but it, it, it's kind of a, you create space and time where you can actually just go and play. Really a good artist would probably have that programmed in like 20% of my week is going to be free time. I don't do I'm not saying that's what I do. Although I have at times yeah. in the past and I should again, you know, like that's where a lot can come out. But, you know, you have so many of these ideas and you lock on a couple and it's like, that's it. That's all I want to do. You know, I want to start doing more aggressive video editing just for making a couple of these simple videos mm-hmm. on our YouTube channel. But time wise, I haven't had that time. Yeah. So as my schedule opens up, it's like, OK, now try multiple camera setups and things that you've been thinking about. 
But again, you think about them, you know, maybe before you have a chance to actually sit down and work on them. So I'm not working out in my sketchbook, but I've thought about it now for, for six weeks. You know, like I'm going to be ready to try some stuff once that time opens up. Do you foresee a point in your life where making comics might sort of be on the back burner when it comes to if, say, film does occupy more of your time? I don't see a big line difference in that, though. You know, if I started painting again, that yeah. would be, you know, it'd be because it's scratching an itch I have. It's not necessarily because I'm abandoning something or done with something. It's just you can only do one thing sure. at a time, really. Uh, we multitask and do a couple, but yeah. you know what I mean. Like, you just can't do everything, so... You only have so many arms. It's what's pulling you at that time, you know, and you go and you indulge that itch and you see where it leads, and that's fun in its own, on its own, and then maybe that stuff has, takes on a life that goes beyond that, but you don't know it until you jump in and see, like... Where do we go? You know, where does this lead? Maybe it leads nowhere, but if it leads somewhere that, okay, I'm so excited by making videos, yeah. it's not like I'm thinking in my head, oh, you owe comics this thing. You have this obligation. I can't imagine comics not being the thing I most want to do, but definitely I'm, I'm sure there'll be detours into other stuff and then it'll come back to comics. When I was doing all those notebook drawings, the reason I returned to comics, why I wanted to do something and I grabbed that Adventure Time strip is at the end of the year, I was looking at my comics output and I had a year where I drew two pages of comics and it's like, you're not, you can't call yourself a cartoonist yeah. if this is it. Yeah. And so, you know, it was like, okay, return to comics, get back on comics. But the thing with comics is like, there's almost no limit to what you can do with them. So if you wanted to do something that was different, probably comics are flexible enough to accommodate that. And I feel like I know comics well enough that that's my first choice. You know, if I had something very far out that required a different media, maybe, but I mean, you know, I love comics a lot, so I can't imagine that, that that's going to go away. Learning continues to be a really important part of what you do, and, and you know, finding new influences, uh, it's, it sounds like it's a big part of what continues to drive you. What have you learned from, from the students? What have you learned from this sort of, like, new, new generation of cartoonists who are working, I assume, largely online in a lot of cases? I don't know if I can sum that up neatly. Very, very big community for me. Uh, one of the great benefits that I've gotten from teaching and didn't anticipate was just having like the feedback and the, and the dialogue with them because I have the same students for fall and spring. So I'm essentially with them for like nine months. Yeah. We get to know each other pretty well in yeah. terms of our artistic processes and output. They're, they're coming from so many different places. Like that's what they teach me is like now I'm looking at some reference that they're pulling from video games that mm. I would never come in contact with left to my own devices. And that's a big thing that they, sort of teach me is just like a lot of what I'm consuming is coming from things they're putting in front of me. And it's not necessarily cutting edge or new artist, but they're new artists to me because you know what? I mean, think of what we have access to now. It's, it's impossible to keep up with anything because there's so much volume. Like in the nineties, I, I would always be excited when the comics journal would have their year end issue and it'd yep. be like best of the year, you know, and there'd be, I don't know, six or seven books that were noteworthy and everybody, there'd be a consensus more or less of like, these are the good books. Now, you know, and there were probably 30 great cartoonists or something in 1993 and we could all agree on 27 of them. Now there might be 30,000 really good cartoonists. You know, like the number has changed in a way that I don't think my mind i don't think any of our brains are built to wrap around that you know like we can no longer process that the way we used to where it was like okay this guy's the best or this this woman's the best no you know like you get into the top 15,000 they all have reasons why they're the best and it really comes down to a subjective like 
I've been on this kick of the binary concept of good or bad. There's no pattern I can discern to apply it to something like a comic book. Yeah. And so that's what the students are doing is just like showing me a lot of stuff. And then we talk about it and it's like, okay, now I'm seeing this other point of view as to why this is valid. Something that I might dismiss on my own. I'm suddenly seeing it through a different, a different viewpoint. That's not a relationship I had before I started teaching. You know, I might have a couple friends and we talk about what we're reading or, hey, I read this and it's really great. Here's why or check it out. But this is like people that we wouldn't necessarily be friends, you know, like we're coming from very different places, very different influences, and it's a chance to, to, to get into that. And whenever something does show up and I'm confused by it or, or you know, whatever, like yeah. I now have a guide that I can get into like, okay, tell me about what I'm looking at here or how is this influential on you or where does this come from? You know, give me more of this or something. So it's a, it's a very strong exposure to a lot of stuff that I would have no way to see. When the internet really started kind of, ex mm -hmm. you know, like sharing everything. I remember thinking like what we're going to need are like lighthouses, like guides that can walk us through Curators. this. Yeah. yeah. And, and so in a way, that's what they are for me. Do you find it more exciting when you look at something and don't understand it? I do find that exciting. Yeah, I do find that very exciting. And I, and sometimes that overlaps. I, I had a conversation with a student about Roly Poly, the uh, Fanographics book which I liked, but probably mostly as a sensational experience. I don't know if you know that book or not. Very brightly colored. So yeah. like that was my first response is like, okay, just visually, I like this. But narratively, it's kind of takes into account social media storytelling that's very strange. There's not obvious beginning, middle and end. Conflicts are kind of weird in it. And I had a positive experience with it, but could not explain it very well to anyone. And Fanographics, uh, TCJ published a review that I found insightful, but was concluded with the reviewer saying at the end, of, you know, like after describing it, they didn't really like it, which fine, whatever. I, I makes sense to me. One of my students, we were talking about the book and it was the same thing where it's like, we can't totally understand this, but it's fascinating to look at and think about and even talk about what don't we totally understand. Yeah. So I find that super, I, I like that. Sometimes I like that more than the stuff where it's like, oh, this is my new favorite artist. Instead, it's almost like, this is the thing that I can't stop thinking about, but I also don't have words to organize it in my brain. Greetings from sunny Los Angeles. That was Jim Rugg. Recorded that one on a recent trip to Pittsburgh. Jim was actually somebody I was trying to get on the show a couple of years ago when I was out in Pittsburgh, but he was out of town. I think he was in uh, Japan at the time, but suggested a couple of cartoonists. Really, really fascinating comics community out there. Thanks to Jim. You can check out his work at Jim Rugg. That's Rugg with two G's dot com. Follow him on Tumblr at Jim Rugg Art. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show there are a number of ways to support us you can rate and review us we're on itunes podcast spotify and youtube if you have any feedback it's rlcast at gmail.com follow us on tumblr that's rlcast.tumblr.com that is the first and best place to get all of your riyl related information and that's about all we got for this week so stick around because we are going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of riyl <laughs>